presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is study number eight that I've entitled Justification Illustrated uh, in Paul's letter to the Galatians that I've also entitled A Call to Freedom. Remember that uh, Paul is writing this letter because of the actions of some people called uh, Judaizers. Uh, sometimes they're referred to as members of the circumcision party. What they were was they were people who taught that uh, believing in Jesus was simply not enough in order to be saved, that uh, you had to also keep the law of Moses. And certainly uh, there are groups today, even among so-called Christendom, that teach essentially the same thing, uh, that uh, while... Faith in Christ certainly is necessary to be saved. Uh, it also includes you have to do other things as well. There, there are some who say, well, you have to believe in Jesus and be baptized. You have to believe in Jesus and uh, take the Lord's Supper. Uh, you have to be, believe in Jesus and speak in tongues. Uh, they're just uh, all kind of groups with all kinds of ideas. And so this particular group in uh, in Paul's day were uh, following, uh, the groups were following uh, Paul around and were telling uh, the new converts, say, look, uh, Jesus is a good start, but remember Jesus is a Jew. And so if you want to really be a good Christian and you really want to be sure you're saved, you need to also keep the law of Moses because remember Jesus was a Jew himself and he kept the law. And so Paul is addressing that and he's used uh, uh, up to this point, he's used six different arguments uh, for justification by faith alone. Remember, justification is that act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous in Christ Jesus. Whenever we put our faith in Christ, and remember that's not something that we just can conjure up ourselves. Uh, The only way that we can express repentance and faith uh, in Christ is uh, uh, because God grants that to us as a gift. And when He gives that to us as a gift, uh, we repent, uh, we repent, change our mind uh, about uh, the way we're living. We change our mind about our attitude toward God and about His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus. And we put our trust in Him. And at that point, there's a double imputation that takes place. All of the sins of all of God's people, all of our sins, are uh, are accounted as having been uh, uh, paid for and were paid for at the uh, at the cross of Christ when He died. All of the sins of all of God's people were placed on Jesus. He didn't have any sins himself, so he was not he, while he was dying for sin. It was not his own sin. He didn't have any, but he was dying for the sins of his people. And the other part of imputation is that uh, because of his perfect life, God now imputes or counts that uh, perfect life to our account uh, through faith in the, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when God sees us, and He always sees us, uh, He sees us clothed not in our own righteousness or self-righteousness, uh, not on the basis of the things that we have done or can do, but He sees us uh, clothed in the righteousness of Christ Himself. And Paul makes uh, seven arguments for justification by faith. First of all, remember he he talked about the experience of of the Galatians themselves. That uh, how were they saved? Were they saved by keeping the law, or were they saved through faith in Christ? And he reminds them that he preached the gospel, and the power of God came, and um, they were granted faith and repentance. And when they expressed that toward God and toward the Lord Jesus, God saved them. 
he used the precedent of Abraham. He said, look, uh, these guys are trying, these Judaizers are trying to get you to follow the law. But remember, uh, God made promises to Abraham uh, four centuries before the law. And so he goes into um, uh, the uh, a contrast of really of the covenants of the the old covenant and the uh, the covenant that God made previously with Abraham. Uh, thirdly, uh, he said from just from a contemporary uh, legal standpoint, uh, there's the immutability of a will. You don't just change a will arbitrarily. And uh, God had made those promises to Abraham, and the fact that the law was given um, <clears throat> certainly did not. Uh, uh, negate the promises that God had made to Abraham. And then he, he uh, his fourth uh, argument has to do with the true purpose of the law. Well, if, if, if the law really didn't change things, what was the whole purpose of the law? And we talked about that in length, that the law was given to reveal uh, sin, to in, actually intensify sin, make us realize what sinners we are, and in doing so to drive us to the foot of the cross. And then we talked about the uh, Paul uh, defends the gospel of grace uh, and justification by faith by talking about the subject of adoption, that is our position in Christ. Not only are we born into the kingdom of God, but we are adopted by God. That is, we are placed as, uh, as full-grown sons. We're no longer slaves. We're not viewed uh, as slaves. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we are sons of God. Not in the sense that Jesus is. He's the only begotten Son of God. But we are, we are sons through adoption. Paul's sixth argument was that the, uh, was his own personal appeal in which he talked about the caring relationship that, uh, that the Galatians and he had had. And he even makes uh, the statement at one point that uh, uh, apparently there was something going on with his eyes. And he said, you, you love me so much that you would have, if it were had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. And today, uh, in this session, we look at uh, uh, Paul's use of Bible typology. That is, he's going to take some historical facts and then he's going to uh, use essentially what is an allegory. And it's really the capstone of his, his argument because what he does is having discussed all these other things, he goes back to Abraham. And just by way of review, uh, in thinking about the background for this final argument, let's just look at a couple of passages from uh, Genesis. Uh, In Genesis chapter 12, we see the earlier calling uh, of Abraham by God in the city of Ur, um, of Chaldees, and this was God's initial promise to Abraham. Now, at this point, Abraham is uh, was seventy five years old, and I I read from Genesis twelve verse one through four. It says, "Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you, and I will make of you a great nation." And I will bless you, and I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now clearly this is a reference to Christ. It's a reference to the proclamation of the gospel, that is through the proclaiming of the gospel throughout the world. And remember that's the great commission, go into all the world and make disciples You preach the gospel and teach, uh, teach converts to, uh, to, to do what Christ said to do and to trust in Him. And so through the proclamation of the gospel around the world, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So that's how that is ultimately fulfilled. So Abram went. At this point, remember, his his name not Abraham yet. It's Abram, which means uh, um, exalted father, which was really kind of interesting since he didn't have any children at this point. It says, So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot, his nephew, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. That's in Syria. So he left Ur of the Chaldees. He was supposed to leave all his kindred behind, but his dad went with him, uh, Terah, T-E-R-A-H, 
and um, and also his nephew Lot, and certainly uh, his his wife Sarai, whose name means uh, princess. And so they arrived in uh, in Syria at Haran. We're not sure exactly how long they were there, but uh, it was a it was a fruitful time. Uh, Abram uh, and uh, Lot both became uh, wealthy in terms of uh, livestock um, while while they were there. And finally. Uh, Terah, uh, Abram's father, died, and at that point they uh, made their way down to the land of Canaan. <clears throat> now, in Genesis chapter 15, we see God reiterating the promise that He had made to Abram. Um, and notice what it says in, in Genesis 15, beginning at verse 3. It says, And Abram said, Behold, now he's speaking to God. He says, Behold, you have given me no offspring. Now remember, God had promised him offspring. He said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Well, this is uh, this is uh, a number of years later, and uh, still he's not a great nation. In fact, he still doesn't have any children at all. And particularly sons, because they were, they seemed to be, well, not seemed to be, they were revered more in those days. Probably some of that was on the basis, uh, perhaps much of it was on the basis of it was an agrarian society and you needed uh, uh, lots of sons to uh, work, work farm. He, uh, but anyway, back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 3. Abram said, Behold, Lord, you have given me no offspring. And he even says, Look, uh, it looks like my uh, my chief steward is going to be the one who inherits everything from me. Uh, uh, yeah, from me when I die. And it says, uh, it goes on to say, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, to Abram. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said, So shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it or accredited or imputed to him as righteousness. Now, the, the fascinating thing, at least to me, in, in this passage is that when God speaks to Abram at this point and he says your very own son is going to be your heir and uh, one of these days your offspring are going to be like stars in the heavens. Think you can number all those Abram? And there's no specific mention of Sarai. And he said well why is that important? Well you'll see when we go back and look at uh, at the historical facts of uh, of what happened here in just a minute, but why is it that uh, why why the delay? God is uh, is has promised him uh, offspring. God's promised him that he's going to be a great nation. Uh, that God's promised him that he's going to uh, be a, uh, not only receive a blessing but also be a blessing to the entire world. So why is the delay? Well, Paul has already spoken to that specifically in Galatians 3 uh, verse uh, 29 when he talks about uh, uh, well verse 28 and 29 where he says there's neither Jew nor Greek there's neither slave nor free there's neither male nor female you're all one in Christ Jesus and if you are Christ's that is if you belong to the Lord Jesus then you are Abraham's offspring uh, to heirs according to to promise, so uh, God uh, has made these tremendous promises, and we discover that believers today uh, and believers always believers in the true God, and since the Lord Jesus has come, specifically uh, believers in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are Abraham's offspring. Now there are there's obviously physical offspring, which are the the, the Jewish people who trace their ancestry back to him, but we uh, who believe in Christ, regardless of what our ethnicity is, uh, are the spiritual offspring of Abram. 
or Abraham. And that's, uh, that's what he's saying there. So that's sort of the background for the final argument. And what I want us to do is, uh, is we're going to look at, uh, at three specific things as we look at this, uh, this allegorical argument that, that Paul makes. We're going to look first, and we're going to do this by looking at the, uh, uh, in Genesis. First of all, we're going to look at the historical facts uh, what actually happened with uh, with uh, Abraham and uh, and the birth of Isaac and the birth of Ishmael uh, prior to Isaac, and then we're gonna uh, we're gonna look at uh, we're gonna look at the explanation that that uh, is given about that and that Paul makes, and then we're gonna see the application that Paul draws from. All of this, as he uh, as he takes these facts and he allegorizes them and he applies them. Now, let me say one thing about the allegorization. Uh, allegor- That's a hard word to say. Be really careful in listening to anybody or doing it yourself, and that is in in terms of spiritualizing a Bible text. The, the lesson is don't ignore the straightforward teaching of the text. Now, it's fine for uh, the Apostle Paul to tell us what he's doing and use it as an allegory. Uh, he, he is, he's an apostle. Uh, he was getting his direction from the Lord. And, uh, and that's, that's wonderful. But you can go off into left field uh, by, and make the Bible mean anything when you begin to spiritualize uh, things. And I, 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 I won't get into it, but I remember uh, when uh, the, the president of Family Radio, the late Harold Camping, uh, would teach on his program. He was uh, well known for spiritualizing Bible texts, and it, it eventually got him in trouble. Because remember, he's the one who was predicting all the various specific times that Jesus would return, and he had some uh, he had some other really strange ideas, including some strange ideas about uh, about Jesus' uh, work on the cross. But I'm not going to get into that right now because it would just uh, take up uh, take up time. If you want to talk about that sometime, I'll be glad to. All right, now let's look at uh, at uh, at the facts of what happened um, and how so we can see how Paul is going to uh, use these facts uh, in terms of expressing them as an allegory uh, to show us that uh, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So, if you're looking at your Bible, I I encourage you to uh, turn to Genesis chapter 16. And at this point... uh, Abram is age 85 years old. So it's been 10 years since God made that initial promise to Abram that he was going to uh, have offspring. He was going to be a great nation um, and all the world would be blessed uh, through him. 10 years later, none of that has happened. So Abram and his wife Sarai did what many of us try to do when we feel like we're... um, latching on to some promise that God has made and we uh, so we think well let's uh, let's help God out at this point God, poor God he must need our help so let's do that and and again one of the reasons that I mentioned earlier that there's no there was no specific mention of Sarai when uh, when when God promised Abraham when he reiterated the promise to Abraham when he said, "Your very own son shall be your heir," um, perhaps that was uh, their justification for what they did, but uh, it turned out to be a huge mistake. Genesis chapter sixteen, uh, verse two. Again, Abram at this point is eighty-five. Uh, Sarai is uh, seventy-five. It says, "And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant." Now, who is her servant? Well, her servant was an Egyptian uh, girl named Hagar. 
Um, and Hagar's name means wandering. Remember, they had picked up that one of the interesting things that had happened was when uh, Abraham and Sarai and Lot came down to uh, Canaan. Remember, there was a, uh, you know, so they'd made their way into the uh, so called promised land. And uh, there was a, there came a famine in the land, and God didn't say anything about leaving. Remember, God provided for Elijah uh, exactly what he needed during a during the time of three and a half year famine and drought and famine. And uh, God didn't tell Abram to leave, but Abram decided on his own that he would go, that the family would go down to Egypt because there was plenty to eat down there, and it was a it was a good place to take all his livestock so that uh, so that uh, he he wouldn't lose all of them. And one of the things that happened now, Abram grew in in terms of wealth and uh, prestige while he was in Egypt. So it looked like, boy, this was a great decision. But one of the things that happened was while they were down there one of the little one of the servants that they acquired was a handmaid named Hagar and so sometimes things that we do when we're uh, experiencing success and we think everything's just rocking along and our attitude is sort of well well the lord you you really are a blessing and uh, I know you're busy helping other people right now so I'll uh, I'll get back to you when I need you and uh, when we adopt that kind of attitude then uh, that's about the time that we decide to uh, to buy Hager uh, as a servant who will come back later on to uh, bite us on the backside. So, uh, Sarai says, uh, The Lord's prevented, prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, that is Hager. Uh, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, uh, this this was essentially surrogacy, so that in the in the presence of the husband uh, and the wife, uh, the the uh, uh, that is in the presence of the wife, in this case Sarai, the husband Abram, would have sexual intercourse with uh, with the uh, with the surrogate. In this case, Hagar. And then the result, uh, the resulting birth, would uh, would be considered the offspring of uh, of Sarah. This would be uh, her son. Obviously, not physically her son, but uh, sort of an adoptive kind of thing. And uh, this way, Abram would have an heir who was uh, who was essentially not a servant like his uh, like his chief trustee. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. So. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So, so notice the first thing that happens is this: this, uh, whereas you've you've had this. Uh, uh, master-servant relationship between Sarah and Hagar. Now, uh, the fact that Hagar has gotten pregnant is uh, is doing a lot of things to destroy the relationship that uh, that they had had. Because now, uh, because Hagar is able to have children and Sarah is not, uh, Hagar has contempt toward her. Uh, toward her mistress. Uh, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And uh, Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. In other words, hey, this is this is your fault. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So not only did this... Um, thing that was uh, commonly done back in that day and in fact in uh, some cultures it's still done uh, not only did it uh, create problems between Sarai and Hagar now it's also created problems between Sarai and Abram uh, Abram it says was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Ab- uh, to Abram Ishmael uh, that name means God hears and the fascinating thing at this point is that God doesn't say anything to Abram for the next 13 years in fact for the next 13 years as far as Abram was concerned God had fulfilled his promise uh, and he had fulfilled the promise through Ishmael, and he didn't know otherwise. So you can imagine this old, this old man uh, 
He's getting up uh, by the time uh, Ishmael is 13 years old. Abram is right at 100 years old. And uh, he's he's poured his life into this fella and this boy. And as far as he knows, uh, this, this is God's promise. Well, that brings us to Genesis chapter 17. Uh, at this point, Abram is 99 years old. Uh, and his his name's been changed now. Uh, in Genesis chapter 17, his name's been changed from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude. So the, uh, the change of his name actually uh, was just to reinforce uh, the promise that God had made. It says, And God said to Abraham, uh, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I, uh, the, both Sarai and Sarah mean princess. Uh, uh, and this is a, a confirmation, really, of the covenant that God had made earlier with uh, with uh, Abram uh, by renaming him. And you'll notice that in both instances, the 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 suffix, the ha 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 kind of sound, uh, is reminiscent of the uh, the word for wind or spirit in Hebrew, which is ruach. And uh, so it's the idea of God breathing His Spirit into uh, into Abram and Sarai. Uh, clearly, uh, it's a confirmation of the covenant uh, as He renames them. As I will bless her, uh, speaking of uh, Sarah, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham. He, he was so impressed with what God was saying. Notice what he did. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who's ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham, Now notice Abraham's response. God says, Alright, Ishmael's thirteen years old. For thirty years, Abraham has thought, This is the promised one. Now God speaks and says, Sarah is going to have a son. He's going to be the promised. He is the promised one. Abraham laughs and says, there's no way that that's going to happen. Not at our age. And then Abraham says something else. And it really reinforces the the bond that he has with with this boy Ishmael. Verse 18 it says, And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Oh, Why can't it be Ishmael? He's my son. God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. You know what the name Isaac means? It means laughter. Abraham laughed. Later Sarah Sarah laughed. God got the last laugh, didn't He? I will establish my covenant with Him as an everlasting covenant for His offspring after Him. As for Ishmael, He said, look, I... I know you love that boy, and, and I've, I've heard your plea on his behalf. He says, I'll make him into a great nation. And he did. He became the father of the Arab nations. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And then we see in Genesis uh, chapter 21, when uh, at this point Abraham is now 100 years old and, uh, and his... Uh, and then some as the story progresses. Uh, let's just read a little bit and then we want to go <clears throat> immediately to uh, what uh, the Apostle Paul has to say about all of this. That's the reason we're looking at this so we can better understand Paul's argument, final argument that he's going to make for justification by faith. Genesis 21, verse 1 and following. The Lord visited Sarah as He'd said, and the Lord did to Sarah as He had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac, or laughter. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. 
Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Not laugh at me, but laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So there's a, there's a great deal of joy at this point. The, the stigma of being a barren woman now has been wiped away from Sarah. It says, And the child grew, speaking of Isaac, and the child grew and was weaned, which was usually took place between ages uh, age 2 to 4 years old, somewhere in that age range. It says, And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian. All right, so now at this point... Um, Ishmael now would be probably around somewhere 15 to 17 years old, somewhere in that age range. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. So uh, the old King James says that uh, that what what Ishmael was doing was he was mocking this this little toddler, Isaac. And Sarah's response to this is, listen, he's not even going to be a joint heir with my son. You get rid of him, you get rid of his mama. The thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Because again, he's, he's poured his life into this boy. And remember, even after Isaac is born and it's clear that he's the, he's the one that God has promised, uh, you know who's who's doing most of the looking after of this uh, of this child Isaac. Well, at this point, Mama and her her servants are taking care of all of those duties. Listen, the the old man is still pouring his life into uh, into Ishmael. You know he's able to do things with him and talk with him, and uh, so he's just he's more and more invested in this boy. And that's the reason it's easy to say uh, to see why he said. Uh, uh, the thing was very displeasing to Abraham. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the slave of the... Uh, I'm sorry. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman. That's grace right there. Uh, because remember, this was uh, this was kind of let's help God out. That's, that's where Ishmael came from. And God graciously says, look, I'll make a great nation out of him. Uh, of course, many of those... Uh, people in from those nations that sprang from Ishmael have been a thorn in the side of the Jews for years and years. It says, uh, uh, and the reason I'm going to do that is because he he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and he sent her. Away. Now, what we've seen so far is we've seen a, a stating of the historical facts from uh, Moses' writing in the book of Genesis. Now, what we're going to see now is how Paul uses this. He's going he's to cite an underlying meaning, and he's going to use it in terms of uh, as, an, as an allegory. So let's, uh, let's look at Paul's allegorical argument, and uh, it falls into three basic parts. Uh, first of all, uh, the, the, he's going to state the facts, and he's just going to summarize what we've just been reading about. Then he's going to explain what that means from an allegorical standpoint. And then ultimately, um, in the last part of this passage, he's going to apply that uh, to the uh, situation of the Galatians and to ours as well by uh, by extension. This is really the capstone of, of, of Paul's argument. He refers to historical events that we've just read. He, he cites the underlying meaning to, to what those events are. Uh, now remember there's a difference between an allegory and a, and a parable. A parable
parable is a story that's cast alongside a situation that makes a specific point. Whereas uh, with an allegory, there's a there's a representation of spiritual meaning um, through some sort of concrete or material kind of form, and and everything in the in the story has a has a meaning, which is certainly different from uh, from what you see in a parable. And again, let me just reiterate the danger of spiritualizing Bible text. Always interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. You, you look for symbolic meaning only if the Bible permits you to look for symbolical meaning. Uh, and clearly, there, there is symbolism in the Bible because there are different kinds of, of texts. There's historical texts like we just read about. There's prophetic text. Uh, there's uh, poetry. Uh, there's pithy sayings like the uh, like the proverbs. Sometimes things are written as doctrine. Sometimes they are descriptive in nature. You know the uh, the the rivers uh, and the trees clap their hands and the mountains sing for joy. Well, mountains don't really sing. That's probably a uh, clearly that that has some sort of symbolic kind of meaning. Uh, trees don't clap their hands. Trees don't have hands to clap. Clearly, that's a symbolic kind of meaning. If the if the if the text uh, permits it, then that's fine. But be very very careful. Uh, always look for the. Uh, <clears throat> for the basic meaning in the text. Put it in its historical context and derive the meaning from that. All right, with with that said, uh, let's look at Paul's final argument for justification by faith as uh, as he uses these historical facts to make his allegorical argument. Galatians 4, verse 21. Again, he's writing to the Galatians who are being badgered by the Judaizers that they must keep the law and apparently some of them have bought into that and Paul is appalled by what they have done. You foolish Galatians, how could you even think about doing this? You who have begun in the Spirit, how is it now that you're made perfect by the flesh? He's he's had all those kinds of things to say. And now the capstone of his argument, Galatians 4.21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, that's Ishmael, and one by a free woman, that's Isaac. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. What happened there was let's help God out. That wasn't, I'm going to trust you, Lord, even though it's been 10 years since you made the promise. Lord, I'm just going to keep on trusting you. It's, no, let's, let's help God out in this situation. That's born according to the flesh. While the son of the free woman, Sarah, was born through promise. In fact, uh, in the eyes of Abraham and Isaac initially, this was an impossibility because of their age. But uh, Paul speaks to that in Romans chapter 4 where he talks about uh, Abraham trusted in the promises of God. Now, so he's, he's, he's summarized the, the facts of what's gone on and now he begins to explain them in verse 24 of Galatians 4. He says, Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. Now, what do you suppose those covenants are? Well, it's the covenant that God made with Abraham, and it's the covenant that God, uh, and ultimately the the new covenant, and it's the covenant that God made with uh, with Moses uh, when the law was given. One is from Mount Sinai. That's the law given to Moses through angels, through a mediator, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Notice he's saying, look, when you, when you think of Hagar, think of where the law was given uh, there in Arabia at Mount Sinai. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Now, now, how is it that she corresponds to the present Jerusalem? Well, 
Think about it. The law was given at Mount Sinai, but where was the central place of the law at the time that uh, the time of Jesus? Uh, and as far as the Jews were concerned, at the at the time um, Paul is writing all of this, it was in Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. That's where the where the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were mainly congregated. So she corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. Now how is it how is it that um, there's slavery there? How is that possible? Well, first of all they were in slavery to Rome because they were under Roman occupation but the point he's really making is that they were under the slavery to the law. And then he correct and then he contrasts in verse 26 he says but the Jerusalem above that is the heavenly Jerusalem it's free. And she is our mother, for it is written now what he's going to do here, he quotes from Isaiah 54, verse 1, and the immediate meaning has to do with the when it was written, uh, when Isaiah wrote it, the immediate uh, meaning had to do with the, with the fact that after the exile, after the Babylonian exile, that the, that the uh, Jewish nation would be very fruitful again. It says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. Clearly, Paul is applying that to Sarah at this point. She's, she's the one who's been barren. She's the one who was not in labor. In fact, it was Hagar who, was in, who had been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the one of those who has a husband. And so he's, he's applying this, um, this quotation from Isaiah 54, which had a, uh, a direct meaning to the, to the people uh, of, that, of Isaiah's day that when the Babylonian, the Babylonian captivity ended, that they would go back to the land, they would be fruitful again. And Paul picks that up and says, but it also has another meaning, and you can apply it here to, uh, to the situation with Sarah and Hagar. That the one who has been desolate, that is uh, Sarah, ultimately is the one who is going to have uh, children who are greater in number than the one who had a husband. And that, that, in that term, that's a, that's a reference to, uh, to Hagar because she was given to uh, uh, Abraham as a, uh, as a wife. Paul, at this point, applies this. He says, okay, here are the facts. You've, you've got these uh, two women, you, uh, each of whom had children. One was a slave, the other was free. They represent two very different covenants. One of the covenants we see most vividly as we look at Jerusalem and we see it's the, it's the center of the law. They're under uh, oppression at this point. They're slaves at this point. They're slaves not only to Rome, but more so even to the law. But it's the heavenly Jerusalem. The, the, the free, that's, that's the free one. And he says now, he makes the application in verse 28, he says, Now you brothers, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, that's Isaac, so, it is also, so also it is now. Now, remember, what was it that at the time of uh, Isaac's weaning, what was it that Ishmael was doing? He was mocking. He was making fun of Isaac. And he said, look... Uh, just in the same way that Ishmael, as it were, was persecuting this, this little baby Isaac. That's what's going on now. That's what these people are doing to you. They're trying to bring you back under the law. They're trying to put you under a system of merit. And in doing so, they are persecuting you. But what does the Scripture say? What, what did God tell Abram, Abraham and Sarah to do? God said, cast out the slave woman and her son. Who's the slave woman? Hagar. Who's her son? Ishmael. What does that represent? It represents the law. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit, not even be a joint heir with the son of the free woman. And here, and here and the next two verses are the conclusion. So, brothers... We 
You and I, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What's he saying? He says, it's Christ who set us free. If the, if the son, remember what Jesus said? If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now Christ has set us free. Stand firm in that freedom. Don't submit yourself again to some yoke of slavery. In this case, the law of Moses. In our case, some sort of system of merit whereby we think if, if, if I do this and do this and do this other thing, that somehow that's going to enhance my righteousness before God. That that's going to make me... Um, uh, more acceptable to God. No, the only thing that makes anyone acceptable to Father God is faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh and that His death was a substitutionary sacrificial death for my sins. And when I believe that, all of my sins are accounted as having been paid through the finished work of Christ on the cross. It is finished, he cried out. To Telestai is completely complete. And his own righteousness is imputed, is accounted to me, so that when God sees me, when He sees you, if you're trusting in Christ, He sees us clothed with the very righteousness of His Son. And we are His children by spiritual birth, and we are His sons and daughters by adoption into the family of God. The, the, writer, the writer of Hebrews expands on this uh, because uh, and this is written uh, oh 10, 15 years later, and in fact it was written right before the destruction of the uh, the city of Jerusalem, which uh, which took place in A.D. seventy. And notice notice what he says because here he makes a he makes the author of Hebrews makes a uh, contrast draws a contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. And, uh, and what our relationship should be to them. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, he says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and, t- and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. What is he talking about? He's talking about Sinai when the law was given. Remember, it, it just scared scared the fool out of these uh, out of these Israelites and said look we don't want God speaking to us anymore Moses you go talk to God let him tell you what he wants to tell you and then you come back and tell us but we're not interested in hearing from God himself verse 21 indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said I tremble with fear I mean it was it was it was while it was magnificent, it was also a terror, a terrifying experience to everybody who was there. Now, he draws the contrast. That, that was the law being given at Sinai. And now he draws the contrast. Verse 22, but, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And then now he draws the now he draws the application. So you you've got you've got the law, the giving of the law, contrasted with the with the with the new covenant, the results of of, of Christ's work on the cross and his ascension into heaven. And now the application, verse twenty five of Hebrews twelve. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they, that is, at the time the law was given, the people who were there. 
if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now, this time, he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Remember that Paul in his allegory shows who the who the natural offspring are, who the who the supernatural offspring are, that's believers in Christ. The Adults, uh, if if uh, if if you're following the old way, then you're enslaved. You're a persecutor, and ultimately you're rejected. But if you're following the new way, the new and living way, the way of freedom in Christ, then you are free. You're free indeed. You may be persecuted, you Judy, uh, by the Judaizers, you Galatians. You may be persecuted today. People are persecuted because of their faith in Christ. But we are not rejected. We are heirs in Christ. We are Christians are children of promise. Don't return to some old system of merit. Christians can expect mistreatment just as Jesus uh, was mistreated. Jesus said, you think they're going to treat you better than they treated me if they did this to me? If they did this to a green tree, what do you think they're going to do when the tree's dry? We as believers will receive an inheritance. We have the down payment now. The Holy Spirit lives within us. And the point that Paul really drives home in this passage is that Christians maintain their freedom by trusting in Christ and His finished work and at the same time rejecting any kind of system of merit. Cast out the bondwoman. Cast out the bondwoman's son. Get rid of this old thing. In other words, reject all legalism. What is legalism? Legalism is a preoccupation with form. And it's a preoccupation with form at the expense of true substance. It's the idea of seeking to secure righteousness in God's sight by doing something. Whether it's being baptized or whether it's receiving the Lord's Supper or whether it's by helping out at the food pantry or helping out at the, at the clothing bank or by giving money or whatever else. Do not think for a moment that those acts enhance our, our righteousness before God. They do not. And people who believe that they do are practicing legalism because they're saying the more I do these things, the more I will be that that I will be ingratiating myself to God. Uh, legalism is not just simply the setting of a, a bunch of standards; it's the worship of those standards, uh, thinking we're spiritual because we keep those standards, although. Obviously, we, we don't even keep our own standards, much less God's. But the other thing that we do is, is we, we think we're spiritual because we're keeping those standards, but we judge other people by those standards that we ourselves don't keep. In fact, that's one of the things that, uh, that Paul addresses um, in, in Romans chapter 2. It is possible to do good deeds and refrain from other things and still not be spiritual. What is our attitude? Our attitude ought not, not to be, you know, I, I do these things because this is going to help me as far as uh, brownie points with Jesus. Not at all. Whatever we do ought to be out of a sense of delight, out of a sense of devotion because of what Christ has already done for us. How, how, how could I even consider doing less because of what He's done for me to such a great extent? Remember, the Pharisees had extremely high standards, and they're the ones who crucified Christ. 
Well, what do we conclude from all this? We've only got about three or four minutes left here. Uh, I, I would point you, if you're following the notes, I would point you to the conclusion, and I'll just look at those very briefly. The law, the law of Moses, or any system of merit as far as that's concerned, uh, the law and any or any other system of merit is mutually expo- exclusive from grace. Legalism cannot produce life, spiritual life. It cannot produce spiritual fruit. It well, I tell you what, it does produce. It produces pride and arrogance, and it produces a judgmental spirit. We think we're the hot stuff, and folks aren't uh, getting along as well as we are, and it makes us want to look down our nose at them. That's the way. Hey, that's what the Pharisees did. God's purpose in redemption is to, first of all, demonstrate His own sovereign power and glory. We see that in Romans chapter 9. But also to set the believing sinner free from the tyranny and the guilt of sin and to set the believing sinner free from the guilt-establishing power of the law or any other merit-based system. We are to look to Jesus. We're not to look to some system of merit. God's command to His redeemed people, God's command to those of us who are saved is very simple. It's keep standing firm in the freedom that Christ already has provided. Embrace that freedom. Enjoy that freedom. His command is to not subject ourselves ever again to the slavery of any kind of legalistic system. Notice the passage I put there in your notes from Colossians chapter 2, verses 20-23. And this is from the NIV. It says, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Now notice, notice, notice this statement. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. These things that we do in a legalistic fashion, they make us think we look good, they make other people sometimes think that we look good because we're doing all of these things. But why are we doing them? Are we, again, what is our motivation? Is it because we're, we're trying to earn points with God? Or is it because we look at our lives and say, Lord, You have plucked me from the miry clay. You have set my feet on a rock and put a song of praise in my mouth. How could I not want to serve you? How could I not want to do the things that are pleasing in your eyes? Oh Lord, I delight to do your will. I want to be devoted to you. Notice the difference in that motivation there. Does this freedom that... Paul talks about here that we're to stand firm in the freedom that Christ has given us. We're not to submit ourselves again to a yoke of slavery. Does that freedom mean I can just live any way I please from now on? Well, now Paul answers that question in the last two chapters of this letter, chapters 5 and 6, because he talks about what should be our response to the truth of what he's been talking about uh, in these first four chapters plus the first verse of uh, of chapter five, but we'll begin that in our uh, in our next session. Let's uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness and goodness. Lord, help us to trust you. Not only to trust you for our salvation, for we cannot save ourselves but to trust You in the daily things, to trust You to seek to draw on the resources that You've provided for us in Christ rather than seeking just to draw on our own standby resources that we wind up getting ourselves in sometimes in deeper trouble just as Abraham and Sarah did when they tried to help You out. Lord, help us to trust in You. Help us to trust in Your promises. Help us, Lord, to examine our own lives 
examine the things that we do in the name of godliness, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to examine those things and ask ourselves and answer ourselves truly. Are we doing those things? Are we doing the things that we're doing out of a devotion for You and a delight in serving You because of what You've done for us? Or are we doing it out of a a, a sense of a demanding spirit uh, that that somehow we think that the more that we do, the more that You're going to uh, be pleased in us and the more acceptable that we will be. Oh God, cleanse us from that. Wipe that away from us. Wipe that from our minds. Wipe that from our hearts. Help us to love You. Lord, we love You because You first loved us. We praise You and we thank You for the freedom that we have in Christ. Help us to stand firm in that freedom and not be yoked again to any system of merit anywhere. But as we stand firm in that freedom, help us to realize that that freedom is the freedom to love You and to worship You and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We praise You through Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to Focus on Truth the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. Write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.